0: That was kind of anticlimactic. Recorded live. Scuba Obsessed, the weekly podcast. We talk about all things scuba diving, from cool new gear to places a dive and scuba new news. Scuba Obsessed episode 332 is recorded live June 22nd, 2017. Welcome back to Scuba Obsessed. I'm Darren Gilson coming to you from the southwest side of the great state of Michigan. Joining me this week, we have Mac the Dive Mentor. How are you doing today, Mac?
1: I'm doing very well. glad to be here.
0: And we also have Kevin Ailes joining us tonight. How are you doing today, Kevin?
2: I'm doing quite excellent. How about myself?
0: I am doing great. This is some awesome weather. I love Michigan this time of year. Uh, other than a few sprinkles a day, it's just been pretty close to perfect. Uh, how are the bugs were you were,
1: were you working today?
0: Yes, I did have to work, actually. It wasn't perfect.
3: No. It wasn't perfect.
0: Well, I, I think I've only got another... Oh, let's see. Another 42 years of work I've got to do. Well, that's it. No, yeah, that's it. Only 42 more hey, years.
2: Hey, I'm not I'm not sure if you guys are watching the chat, but Eric is uh, saying hi to Mac out of the chat room.
0: Hello. <laughs> <laughs> He's saying something about being humid, which we have had a little bit of humidity, well, but yeah, well, it's, it seemed to uh cut off pretty pretty well. It hasn't been completely insane humidity. What about this?
1: no you have things to go I think it's Arizona I Was was been trip up here cuz you can take off in the jet cuz it's shit out out average 121. that was before we got to the airport
2: oh. I can't imagine the air conditioning being that effective in that kind
1: of heat oh, oh. man that's got to be
0: horrible mhm i oh, don't know i think any air conditioning would be wow. better
2: than nothing
1: for uh, one time in the airplane, they'd like you to roll down the windows. <laughs> <laughs>
2: yeah. Well, Eric says it's a dry heat, but I don't know. Dry heat at 121 is miserable no in matter how you look at it. I mean, um, yeah, it might be better being dry, but still, that's gotta be yeah. I've
1: been there in Laughlin when it was like that, and it's it, it's dry heat. And walking from one casino to the other is fine, but staying out there is a bear.
0: It's more like a uh, an oven than anything else. Mm-hmm. We'd we'll like to thank everybody who's in the chat room. We have Eric who's yeah. hanging around there. We have S. Nelson. Uh, we have uh, Kevin's Alter Ego is also in the chat room. Uh, chat room, we've been starting about 9.30. Also, keep a watch out. We'll be rolling out some new chat software coming. This week, I have officially moved all the episodes. I say all. There's probably 10 or 15 that I haven't found yet, but... uh We've got most of them, if not all of them, moved over to the new host. So we'll be making the the EverFun changes with iTunes and Stitcher and all our audio feeds and getting those onto the new host. And we're doing that, which allows us to stop using TalkShoe and uh, prevent some of the wackiness that happens with TalkShoe. TalkShoe has not significantly changed or improved since we started using it over eight years ago. So it is time to move on to some other solutions. Uh, so we'll be giving those a try i may have to fire up another computer to bridge the audio but we'll do something
2: you're uh, here, here i'm all for the
0: talk shoes i mean talk shoes like when you pull it up it still uses flash so uh, it's just time for it to, to go away but it, it was a handy tool i like how they had everything together and really nobody has come out with a exact same piece of software uh, uh with with similar capabilities Let's go ahead and jump right on into the news. And let me see, I've got so many windows open. What's our What's our first article? We We had one that was written by a blogger talking about doing a solo trip to Egypt. And this is a young lady from London who uh, was was following the traditional route. She was uh, being the good person. Had a career. Uh, bought some property. Was going to sell buy and sell property along with her father. He was in the property business. And then her mother suddenly passed away when she was about 22. And she said, you know what? Life's more than just the grind. So she went and traveled the world. Uh, She lived in Hong Kong for a couple of years. And she sounds like she absolutely loved it in Hong Kong, but she thought it was too easy. Uh, So uh, somebody had talked her into uh, visiting them in Jordan. And when she got to Jordan, it was just a A little bit away from Egypt, and even though she'd heard all the bad press about uh, terrorism and how dangerous it was, she thought she'd give it a try. And she's now living there for the last two years uh, and trying to show how safe it can be. Uh, I'm not sure if I really buy into that it's safe. I think anywhere in the world, if somebody doesn't mess with you, it's safe until they do. Uh, She did learn how to scuba dive while she was, uh, I think it was in Hong Kong. Um, so that's what she's doing over in Egypt now is she's a scuba instructor, kind of like how uh, Claire Wilde was, who was, on, was a host of the program for a little bit. Um, she says, before I started traveling, I thought my life was pretty well set up. I took all these scuba courses I could master and started earning money from diving combination just made a lot of sense to me along the way I taught English started my blog subsisted on very little money for a long time financed all my travels myself I live in Micronesia worked on a boat for 3 months before moving to Hong Kong uh, where she talked about that that was fun she had um, she was visiting her brother who was in Jordan a friend suggested I extend my trip to scuba dive in Egypt once i realized how much cheaper rent was in Egypt i decided that was where i wanted to be uh, rent in Egypt, in the article, they're saying it's $150 a month for her own studio with a swimming pool. Her rent in Hong Kong was $1,300 a month, which actually for Hong Kong sounds a little cheap for thirteen, I would have thought it even. That was cheap. a shared
1: rent too, though.
0: Yes, yes, that does make sense then. Uh, she says, Egypt is one of the best places in the world to scuba dive. It's mind-blowing what you see but just by putting your face in the Red Sea. You get to swim alongside dolphins, whales, sharks, and rays. So she's living in Shram El Shrek, a place many people perceive as dangerous because of a plane from Russia was struck down here in 2015. Since then, tourism has taken a serious nosedive. used to be such a bustling town for European tourists. Now there is hardly anyone. You can stay in a hotel for $20 a night.
2: Well, maybe there's a reason why it's so cheap to stay there. I don't know.
0: I went to Gaza recently and was stunned by what I saw. There was absolutely nobody at the pyramids. I felt like I'd snuck in after hours. I couldn't believe I was standing in a land where thousands of years of history one of my teachers told me about in school. It was deserted. So many hotels have shut down the past few years. People tell me about how busy it used to be. Most family-owned hotels are struggling in Cairo, but the international chains are still holding up.
2: Well, yeah, that's because the international chains are going to be pumped up by the uh, cash flow from other countries. The locals, are if they don't make it there, they just don't make it.
0: Right, in and those uh, chains they they just need to have a representation. I mean if you're not if you're a high a Hilton or one of those large chains and you don't have one in a place where people are going because you still have business trips that have to happen you you have uh, diplomatic travel that has to happen. so there's expectations that those chains have places everywhere. She says she gets so many emails and messages on her blog asking if Egypt is dangerous. Things do happen here, and they are tragic. People are scared of terrorism, but I think I need to remember it happens all over the the world, just not predominantly Muslim countries. Nothing has happened to me since I've been here. People think Egypt is a tiny place. If something happens in Egypt, the whole country must be unsafe. Every single day I'm reminded and amazed by how big a country it actually is. I'm in the South Sinai, and North Sinai as a lot of political conflict takes place. You just can't say Egypt is dangerous. Parts of Egypt are dangerous. It's like London like, parts of London is dangerous. Uh, my passion is to give people an option to see Egypt, other than what the media portrays, so I started recording my everyday life. So what do you guys think? Uh, Twenty dollars an article? Yeah, $20 a, a night doesn't sound too bad. Well, back to that.
2: The scuba diving is that great. I mean, I, I have I a mean, bunch but I mean, you'll see what sharks and dolphins that easily. Uh, I'm in.
0: Back in the
1: sixties, Fromm used to have a book of travel. It was Fromm's Europe five dollars a day. So twenty dollars sounds good.
0: Yeah. I, I just wonder what kind of um, yeah yeah. what kind of shortcuts have they taken in the travel? Because they they, they got to survive. Even if you're just taking twenty bucks to fill the room, you have to cut something out of it to be able to exist at twenty dollars a day in a hotel.
2: Yeah, probably the air conditioning.
0: <laughs> yes, yeah. The, the air conditioning is powered by an exercise bike. You have to
2: pedal. No, no air conditioning in Egypt. That sounds like a good trip. Yeah. I can see why 20 bucks a night. <laughs>
1: yeah, I, The only thing I would have liked to know is um, her fluency in languages.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: How does that help or how is that where she's at right now? I know quite often in Europe, a lot of places in Eastern Europe, English is, is quite, quite common for everyone. So I didn't know what it's like in that part of the world.
0: I've, I know
2: people who, yeah, but you know, I kind of wondered just how, how go ahead.
0: Uh, I was going to say, I know people who lived sorry. in, uh, in Jordan, just doing digs and they, and at least in their area, it was pretty much English speaking. And I have an idea that Ed, Egypt, uh, for a tourist, there's probably enough English going on. Cause wasn't that a colony of, uh, England for a number of years?
1: I just practiced an Australian or New Zealand accent just in case.
0: Yes, I, I, I like that strategy, too.
2: I, I, I kind of wonder though, just how much you know, risk she's putting yourself at, though. I mean, you know, we hear in the news quite a bit about, you know, the risk of, you know, Western Westerners in these uh, Muslim countries, and there's not very many Westerners, and they want to take somebody. You know, there's kind of a, a small pool to pull from. So I'm curious, you know, if she's had any close calls or, you know, yeah. like, keep an eye on her.
0: Yeah, but but the only thing she does say is she says street harassment is a major issue. While many local women are more covered up, I'm a foreign woman who dresses differently. I can see why a first-time solo traveler might be uncomfortable, but yes, you have to be confident and say no. In the last six years, she going back and talking about some other stuff. In Egypt, I'm challenging on a day-to-day basis. I've, it's hard to feel settled here. Traveling around is not easy at times. I can feel unwelcome since it's difficult to meet like-minded people and make new friends, but I'm planning on staying in the Middle East for at least two more years and give people an outlet to follow my daily life. I want to show how safe and fun. It can be a solo female traveler. It, it, it seems like there's a little contradiction there. She has really, it sound, the, the read between the lines, Sound like I have no social life, and it's hard to make, make new friends. Uh, so is she proving that she can do this just to do this, or is it really... That safe. I mean, she's not describing uh, an experience that I think most of us would want to have for any extended amount of time.
2: I mean, yeah. I mean, if she's being being accosted on a daily basis, there. Um, you no, know, and, and granted, you know, she's going to. I'm sure she's much bolder than the average person. What well, you know, she's doing you know, proves that. But I would think that you know, the average person being hassled on the street, dated you know on a daily basis by the locals, would certainly uh, detract from the experience. Yeah. I mean.
1: The, the comment section.
2: Yeah, again, we have, you know, more reasons why it's 20 bucks a night over there.
1: So. Yeah, I was going to say under the comment sections at the end of the blog that's, that's just posted at, mm-hmm. there's a couple of uh, give and takes on why people are sometimes harassed. And one is if you don't dress in the same culture of the environment, mm-hmm. you stand out. And if you really didn't want to stand out, you shouldn't wear tight pants, that kind of item. Yeah. and I mean there's there's several articles pros and cons and, and and me yeah I agree part of it you should be doing so you don't call attention to yourself but by the same token I don't think you have to dress just like the natives do
0: right well and that's part of the the country does the country want tourism which egypt before they had the um, call to with the spring there where they Arab spring where they had a bunch of uh, rioting going on and strikes, which I certainly understand locals not being happy the way the political climate was. It was functionally a dictatorship for a number of years. But if you decide that you want that tourism dollar to come there and visit the pyramids and to do some scuba diving, you need to make some accommodations. Uh, And it doesn't sound like they've gone out of their way to encourage that. I'm not seeing any commercial saying, Hey, come on over to Egypt uh, so I I think uh, you know there's some there's some opportunity there. Well, we well, might have some
1: response from our European and uh, you know people who watch it might give us some feedback on this because I'd be curious to know what mm-hmm. travelers think. I know a lot of Australians and New Zealand New Zealanders since that backyard basically they do a lot more traveling there than a lot of Americans do. Oh, be yeah. interesting to hear their perspective on that. Yeah,
0: yeah. Egypt is I don't think other than the pyramids has really been targeted at the U S there's, there's plenty Russians. I know a lot of Russians were heading over there. Uh, you know, you know, New Zealand would be a perfect example the UK. I think they had direct flights uh, from England right into Egypt. So, well, let's see what's on, what's the next nice article though. Yeah. Uh, and then we had an article from deeper blue that is talking about how to make the top tips for how to make scuba diving fun for kids. Um, uh, and, and as always, uh, we'll have show notes on our website, Uh Jim Billings, thanks a lot to him for keeping those up to date. And, and you'll probably want to read most of this over there. Uh, but I just thought it, w- it was interesting to highlight that somebody had an article that was trying to drive scuba diving to a younger audience, which I do encourage the awareness part of it. Uh, but. Uh, scuba diving may not be for everybody so they talk about some of the courses that are available patty offers a youth program for kids eight and under the most basic of these is the patty bubble maker program where it allows children to experience the thrill of breathing underwater in a confident a confined environment uh no more than two meters or six feet deep Uh, the Patty seal team program is more comprehensive. Also hosted a swimming pool consists of a series of aqua missions that cover basic scuba skills as well as specialty adventures ranging from search and recovery to aquatic life identification. So these younger programs are really aimed at familiarization with the gear, uh, getting the kids into the water, uh, and then learning some basic tasks, but they're, they're trying to do it in a way that is safe. Um, I'm going to guess that at the six feet and less, uh, you know, any risk that you might have with poor buoyancy control is going to be significantly uh, reduced. Uh, at, at ten, they have a PADI Junior Open Water Dive Course. It is exactly the same as the adult version, only with only additional restrictions. After qualifying, kids age ten to eleven can only dive with a certified parent, guardian, or PADI professional and must not exceed twelve meters or forty feet. Children's age twelve to fourteen must dive with a certified adult over age eighteen. When they reach 15, these restrictions are lifted and they're automatically upgraded to full open water diver status. Other training organizations facilitate scuba diving for kids, such as uh, SSI, Scuba Rangers, or SDI's Future Buddies, uh, both of which start at 8 years old. So one thing they point out in the articles is making sure that your child or kids are ready to dive. Uh, just because courses are available doesn't mean that your child is ready or able to dive. Only you will know when your child is physically or emotionally mature enough to deal with the ups and downs of an entry-level course. An important question to answer uh, because encouraging a child to dive before they're ready is both dangerous and counterintuitive. If they find the course scary, confusing, or intimidating, the chances are they'll be put off scuba diving for life. Um, Some things that your child will have to do before taking a course is pass a medical questionnaire. They also need to be able to pass a swim test, so you'll want to make sure that they're able to swim. One of the skills is treading water for ten minutes and swimming in uh, for two hundred meters in a pool, three hundred meters if they're going to use a mass fin, and snorkel. Confidence in the water is key. They need to be ongoing enough, outgoing enough to be able to interact with instructor who may be a complete stranger. And the child needs to be comfortable enough to speak up when they don't understand or when something's wrong. Um, They also need to have a attention span long enough to listen to the instructor both in the classroom in the water. Also, to have mental capacity to understand the theoretical side of the course material. They will learn is the same material that the adult open water divers learn. And if you're a scuba diver, you know what that is. There are no special books for kids. Uh, personally, I found that the books are written at an age 12 level, so it shouldn't be too tough for them. Uh, they need to, <laughs> you laugh at that. Uh, good oh, understanding okay. of dive principles is essential for their safety. Most <clears throat> importantly, your child has to want to dive for themselves. And then they go on and they talk about the dive center, deciding on destinations. These are all important things. Uh, so, um, Mac, you, you had your daughter diving. At What age did she start? Fourteen. Fourteen? Yes. And did you think that was a good age for her? For her? Yes.
1: It worked out very well. But by the same token, all her dives are uh, extremely supervised by a hovering parent.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Helicopter day.
1: Oh, big time. And you're talking shallow water, good conditions, not, none of this weedy grubbing.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: And even even with that, I, I was extremely careful. Right. I, it's, it's, it's a very awkward situation to me because you keep reading these studies that says even today now, that adult males are not considered mature and mentally competent until they're 24.
0: Was, was that forty I'm slow. Where you, was that 44? Where getting, 24.
2: Where are you getting that from?
1: Uh, I'd have to go from? look for the quote, but those are different variations of when does the mind mature for, in this case, males. And it was extremely up there. I mean, they're saying 18 is insufficient for life activities that could be life-threatening. Which is sort of funny, since you can get freaking drafted at eighteen.
2: Well, that, and you've got a driver's license at sixteen, and you're paying taxes uh, as soon as you're working. And um, I don't know where you're going to draw the line at someone being an adult. Heck, you can get prosecuted as a, an adult as little as young as twelve years old. So I think well, everyone's the, having, everyone's uh, using a different scale as when you're an adult. So
1: well, I've, I've seen too many lawsuits from a different avenue from skydiving required you to be over 18 and yet with parental consent even after they've signed it, meaning the parents they can still sue and say well their, their kid was not competent enough to do that because it was a little more extreme than they had anticipated and on one hand you're saying yes I am but if you get hurt well it's somebody else's problem because they didn't train me well enough uh, I see the same thing in scuba I, I'm not comfortable I would not teach anybody that young
0: yeah, I, I just mean, yeah. I mean, my I
2: per- that like uh, made on a case by case basis, you know, because you've got, you know, some kids which uh, you know, twelve, fourteen years old, they they possibly could have, you know, conceptualized to be, uh, you know, diving with a parent, um, you know. Then we've also seen it in scuba classes where you you have young adults that just don't take it seriously, and you know. I don't know. I, I kind of wish they would kind of do it on a case by case basis because you, you, you do see where in a lot of situations where once someone has paid their fees to be a, to be in a, a a diver, um, you know, their, their, their good instructor is going to do what it takes get to give me a diver. But then you know we, we do see some people out there which you know at any age would probably yes. shouldn't be out there.
1: Yeah, um, I've got, on my topic tonight. It's going to be Diver Fatalities. I'll hold my comments till after I review this one on the air.
0: Okay. Well, the next uh, article, I think the next one is going to be Scuba Diving in the Ozarks. And that one actually starts as a safety tip. Uh, and what they're doing is they're, it's almost like they're advertising this article. And this is from KSPR an ABC TV station down there. And they're saying scuba diving in an open-body of water can be a daunting task let alone in a lake where visibility is extremely low, and that's exactly what 1,000 people across the Ozarks are signing up for every summer season. The general manager at Dive Ventures said, scuba diving in a lake is extremely different than diving in the ocean. It's different in two ways, visibility and the types of water. You'll want to make sure that you and your buddy have a light so you can see each other. Uh, This, according to Aaron White. The weather can also play a huge role in the water's visibility. For example, when KSPR news went, to get video, the weather was overcast and it just rained, therefore there's a lot of dirt in the lake. The next difference is the different types of water, salt water versus fresh water. Since the ocean is salt water, scuba divers more buoyant and requires less help from a wetsuit. Uh, while they said the variety of safety measures need to be taken when you dive, the number one thing is, is remembering to breathe. Um, even though it may seem obvious, she described the first time divers forget the regulator properly can get panicked. Also important to make sure each scuba diver has two regulators. Uh, and then they go on. So some of this stuff seems like uh, things that will be covered in your regular open water. They are correct in that uh, conditions are going to be different. So if you have been a open water ocean diver, even with quite a bit of experience, and you've never had the pleasure of being in in freshwater, and this, this really applies anytime you go to a, a new location, you might want to get some local expertise to help you be prepared. So if you've been only diving the day in crystal clear water uh the dive lights is, is certainly a good recommendation how many times have we been diving in you know you have bob's uh ray of the sun uh, flashing around and you can easily keep yourself uh, in in his vicinity
2: yeah i mean there's you definitely do need to have experience for different environments down there you know we we see it quite a bit uh you know with people who have had to use a you know Heavy exposure suits. I know when you went on to bon terre, that's uh, something which they really check you out thoroughly because they have a lot of um, you know, people saltwater divers who haven't used a you've been used a you know a, a seven mil wetsuit, and you know just a, a simply going from a shorty to a seven mil, you know the changes in your buoyancy um, can throw off even a, even an experienced diver, and you know let alone the things that we have as far as you know going to dry suits and. Um, poor visibility and cold water and cold water regulators, and you know, the variables just never end. So, you can never assume that just because you're an experienced diver, you can, uh, you know, handle any environment. I mean, every, every environment's different.
0: Yeah, certainly. And they also mentioned some other things that uh, for us are becoming second nature, such as having a dive flag, which I think even in the open the open oceans, you, you would need to have. Uh, Probably the difference is being that's being flown by the uh, dive boat.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, and, and we have that, you know, when we're diving here, too. Where, you know, if you're diving off a boat, uh, the loss list is within 100 feet of that. It might be a bit of a challenge depending upon the size of the wreck because some of the wrecks we're diving are, you know, 300 feet long, or in the case of Cedarville, you know, 600 feet long. But um, that's the plan, anyway. So whether it comes together or not that's a different story.
0: Okay, let's see what's coming up. A Portland man finds the keel of a shipwreck watched up on Cannon Beach shore. Cannon Beach, Oregon. A Portland man with his family in a Cannon Beach found something he wasn't expecting Wednesday. It looks like a piece of driftwood on the beach, but look closer as intentionally... Place notches and nails hammered into it. I genuinely believe these are handmade cuts, said Jeffrey Smith, who stumbled upon the wood. A person who lives nearby says it washed ashore months ago. Smith immediately called some experts, hoping to get answers. It definitely wasn't something I expected. I planned on being home in bed last night, but instead rented a hotel room. On Thursday, Chris Dewey of the Maritime Archaeological Society showed up the document. it. After a little poking around, Dewey said he thinks it could be part of a shipwreck. Between the Columbia River Bar and the Oregon Coast, there's an estimate of around 3,000 wrecks, and we've only documented documented a few hundred. Dewey said, Dewey said pieces old ships wash ashore every year. Sometimes people pick up those pieces, not realizing potential historical significance. Instead, this wood is thrown into bonfires. He thinks the piece of wood may be a piece Back. of a keel, which is structure usually in the bottom of a ship. He said it could also be part of an old ship's crossbeam. Dewey estimates it could be up to 100 years old. At this point. There's still a lot we don't know, where did it come from, exactly how old it is, which ship was it originally a part of. We still have a lot of research to do, and you never know what might turn up. There's evidence that the shipworms have eaten the wood. He said shipworms aren't too common in the area, which means a piece of wood could be from a long way away. Cannon beach is also where back in 2008 people found cannons from 1846 shipwreck, and for the wood smiths came across, it's unclear whether it's significant or more until more testing is done. Smith said he hopes the wood gets preserved if state officials determine there's enough historical significance. The find has been reported to the state archeologist, but the expense it's an expensive process to preserve this kind of discovery. So it may cost between $5,000 to $10,000 to preserve it in the paper, or it could take months. And the time it takes to the decision as to whether or not it's there, the tide could carry the piece away back to the sea.
2: Well, this is a, a common predicament, I mean, when you, I, I like to watch, to walk the beach when the, uh, early spring when the ice first goes out, because the, uh, often the ice will scrape up the bottomlands, uh, and bring pieces. you know, you see all kinds of fresh things along the shoreline, you know, when the ice is gone, and a lot of wood you see along the shoreline, you know, may very well be pieces of shipwrecks, um, uh, but the, but but they come by Saga Came across it was a, a piece of a shipwreck and had you know, it had the you know the, the bars hammered into it. It had the the the, uh, the grommets to hold all the wood on it there as well. Um, but then it was gone a week later. Uh, well, and you see driftwood, um, discernible as what it's from, you know. Can uh, look at it and identify that hey yeah this is this is something which could be a be part of a shipwreck you know you, you look at it and you know the, the giveaways are does it have the iron pins hammered into it because you know the the old these old wooden boats the way they were constructed is they you know they, they took it, you know a, a hand drill and bore holes in um you know in the rib the keel and then they hammered pins into there these the, the boats were actually pinned together. And then some of the later ones, they actually would put uh, like, like, like a washer on the end of the of the uh, pin and hammer the end of the of the pin to, to mushroom it to to, you know, to get more holding strength for it there. And when you come across things like that, then yes, uh, you very likely have a shipwreck. Although still, you have other objects. You know, that it could be part of a, of a dock, or it could be, um, you know, part of you know different machinery. Uh, it's really hard to say exactly that you've got a shipwreck unless you can really name that piece of wood. And, you know, the picture I'm seeing here on this article um, is pretty ambiguous. You know, uh, got a he's um, pointing at some marks in the wood, which if I saw this, I wouldn't have any reason to think that it's a shipwreck. What do you think, Mac?
1: Could be a seawall.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's
1: really it's really hard to dock. tell on some of the construction back in the old days. So, it's one of those like they found here on the beach uh, two years ago, two three years ago. The one between there, right? Grand Mirror and the Cook uh, plant.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Remember that one whole section, and that was section of a hull, and it's gone again. Mm-hmm. It was gone in what a week. Yeah, but again, yeah. But when, it, and,
2: but when you have something like that, something that comes ashore like that where it's you know has enough other pieces with it, you can determine that's a shipwreck. Then yeah, that's clearly a shipwreck. Something like this where it's just a, a few beams. Kind of hard
0: to say what it is. Yeah, Eric in the chat room is saying that it looks like uh, a keel if you happen to take a chance and watch the video.
1: Yeah, a lot of money to spend to identify something that may or may not and more than likely does not have historical significance. And the money is really the factor.
0: Yeah, what would be valuables if you could somehow tie that to something specific? Like you had some well-documented wrecks, and then you would be able to, to say, oh, well, that's this piece that's missing from one of those wrecks. But uh-huh. I mean, it's, it's going to be real difficult. Yeah, but uh, your best bet is take as many photos as you yeah.
2: can. Yeah. If, if you could put, put a name on it, you know, that would be, that would be helpful. But um, without, without a, you know, some suspected wrecks that it might be, then, you know, it's just boards on the beach, you know. And, you know, you, you see stuff like this fairly common in the spring. Uh, you know, I, I, I like to walk the section of uh, from um, Oval Beach up to the up to the dot, up to the uh, the, the mouth of River, and then sometimes I'll walk also from uh, like the, uh, the dunes down to the, you know, the Council River because there are some reported shipwrecks. Well, there, there were ships which were lost in that section there, and you do see a lot of you know kind of just un- unidentifiable wood down there but are you looking at wood which you know washed down the river and so you know someone dumped you know we, we know that they've been dumping things in the river forever you know, maybe someone you know was remodeling their house and they just tossed all the all the lath and the wood out, out in the wood out in the river and it washed down and, and you're actually looking at you know <laughs> you know the the trusses from someone's house <laughs> you don't you don't know
0: well, how about this next find? Uh, not quite a keel. Uh, let me see. Oh, I don't have But along a, with
1: what we're talking about, that wood, this has some historical significance because of shipwreck that is nearby and a proven backdoor, you know.
0: Yeah. So this is a man finds a 17th-century grenade from the Shidem shipwreck at Dollar Cove gun, Gunwall, Cornwall. man described how he found the 17th-century hand grenade washed up in the beach from a Cornish shipwreck. Robert Fels was walking along the low-water shoreline at Dollar Cove uh, near Helston when he made the remarkable discovery. Incredibly, the weapon is still packed with black residue and remains of the original gunpowder after 333 years underwater. Their grenade even contains the remains of a wooden peg, which still plugs the fuse hole. The metal ball about the size of a cricket ball is completely encased in concretions of small stones and other material which accumulate around any iron object left in the seawater for a lengthy period of time. Mr. Felice from Mullion said he was thrilled at the chance to find and report to the receiver of the wreck. I was delighted. It was incredible to think that this piece of history had been rediscovered. The best thing was calling the bomb disposal people from Plymouth who came into Mullion with a blue flashing light. They took out the black powder. The grenade is the most likely to have come from the wreck out of, uh, Shidam, which was lost in the Dollar Cove in 1684. She had been a Dutch merchant ship, but was captured by Barbary pirates in 1683. Shortly afterwards, she was recaptured by the English, and rather than be handed back to the Dutch, was converted into a transport ship for the Royal Navy. The story takes an unexpected twist when the English were handed control of the Tangiers in present-day Morocco as part of a dowry from the Portuguese wife of Charles II. Unable to defend the town, they decided to pull out, and the shy dam was loaded up with supplies of arms and ammunition. Split from the convey returning home, she found herself trapped in the Mounts Bay and ran aground during a storm on April fourth, sixteen 1684. Uh, Mr. Fleece added, I've reported it to the appropriate authorities because there are too many important artifacts which are not declared, often through ignorance, and I feel it's important that history is preserved for others to see and learn about. I hope this is where it ends up, somewhere where it can be seen and this seems to be a trend in the last few weeks of articles where people are concerned that they've got to report it the right way or stuff's going to disappear. So are we, are we reading too much into this or is that something that seems to be happening over there?
1: I don't know. I like the picture well, though of the cannon they're, revo- they're retrieving.
0: Yes. That was a, that was a nice photo there.
2: Well, the article we last turned about uh, things would disappear if not properly, there was a, a pretty strong political climate around that particular wreck. Um, so I'm sure that that's what they're referring to with uh, that's that African wreck. Um, I'm not sure why they'd be concerned about this one. Maybe they'd be concerned you know, to this ordinance that uh, they might just be, you know, blown up and thrown away. So, I mean, doesn't the bomb squad usually, when they get something which is potentially explosive, they usually blow it up, don't they?
0: <laughs> they like to. Uh, something at this age, I think they probably, uh, hopefully, we're taking a measured and appropriate response to it. Uh, I think the risk of black powder that's been waterlogged for three hundred plus years uh, wasn't a huge explosion risk.
2: Particularly not when it's still wet. I mean, yeah. I, I don't know. You dry it out, and there's a, probably a re- remote chance, but
0: um, it looked like they cut, sure they the, cut it open. Just that, that,
2: that is how he knew there was something inside that conversation. I mean, yeah, Isn't it just a rock on the outside, basically? That, that,
0: if you didn't know what you were looking for, you just swear it was a rock. Uh, mm-hmm. So I, I think this is uh, somebody who's, you know, has a hobby of looking for these sort of things, and was was pretty excited to come across it.
2: Yeah, the problem. I think you're right. That there must be someone who knows how to identify a concretion, because the rest of us would just say, "Yeah, it's a rock." You know, why are we going to cut this thing open?
1: Yeah. As a, as a side note on that particular ship. You know, it's been found more than once. It was actually found in 1971, and then it was lost again because of the sand shifted over it until this year again.
0: Oh, okay. So it's been re-exposed, so that would make sense that they're finding yes. new artifacts with it being re-exposed. I was just picturing that here's a wreck that's been there for a while, and somebody just went, oh, that's not a rock, that's a, that's a grenade.
2: Well, maybe it's an, if it's an area, but if it's an all-sandy area, then, you know, a rock might
1: stand out. Right. There's an article here I'm looking at talked about, first seen by a local diver in 1971, and designated under the Protection of Wrecks Act of 1973, has been buried for many years under the shifting sands of the Church Cove. It's now managed by Historic England, and dived by a keen local team. And There's some really good shots of this, but... Uh, that's away from the subject matter. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Mac, you had a few articles you came across. Uh, one was researchers find tsunami on the Great Lakes. Uh, this was originally posted in April twenty seventh, uh, twenty sixteen, and updated on the twenty seventh. Uh, but they say researchers found that Great Lakes may have a type of tsunami after all. They're not caused. They're not tsunamis caused by earthquake. These tsunamis are caused by organized areas of thunderstorms. The type of tsunami is called. A meto, m e t e o t tsunami, Meteot, Metarot, yeah. Which
2: basically do you means, have any any links? For, do you have any links for that article?
1: Um, I put, I put the link in the here. I put the link in the chat thing for us. We could oh, somehow paste okay. it over.
0: Yeah, I'll I'll paste it into the talk show. You can get it from there. But uh, okay, yeah, there we go. Um,
1: The the, the most common form, by the way, of this tsunami they're talking about is I've actually observed this on two different occasions where you've had differential air pressure in Chicago versus ours. And I have watched the lake water on this side move out at a slow pace until you're past a second uh, sandbar out in Lake Michigan from our coastline, which is several hundred feet. And you're watching that suddenly calm no wave no wave action it just sort of goes in the, and you watch the water start going across the lake and it's like you stand there a minute and you look and say what the hell and then just as easily it came back in no no ripples no waves came flowing back in the same way and it was due to the mm-hmm. air pressure in two different areas of the lake at the same time which is similar to what they're talking about here on the tsunamis mm-hmm. the second part is yeah, the sea that yeah, that's happened. I've watched it here. The other one was a siege type that we've had several and has caused depth in both St. Joe, South Haven, and Sagata, where the water came up a, uh, an aspect of almost six feet.
2: The, the uh, lake receding due to air pressure, that is something which actually happens up on uh, Lake Superior with some regularity because Lake Superior being an east to west lake, you'll have uh, fronts come across it and you may have a a huge difference in air pressure on the east side versus the west side. And in Lake Superior, people actually have to moor their boat a little bit differently in the docks because it can drop down six feet and then come back up, and you find your boat is at the dock. So, uh, you know, I've never seen it happen on Lake Michigan, but, of course, you can watch this longer than I have. It doesn't surprise you that you've noticed that, Mac, but...
1: Well, when it goes 50, 60, 100 feet out, it's freaking noticeable. The only thing is, had we had cameras at the time at the cook plant, that would have made major news because it was, it was awesome. Uh-huh. But a little scary because we didn't know what the heck was going on.
2: <laughs> yeah, well, you got that hey, big containment
0: building. You're fine.
2: They're, they're, they're finally pumping the water out of Lake Michigan down. You know, it's, go, it's, it's going to Colorado and going across the continental divide like they've been talking about all those years. like That's going to happen.
0: Yeah, somebody pull the plug. <laughs> well, here at the, at the end of the article, they talk about some uh, seizures that they think may have been though, that uh, uh, meteo tsunami. Uh, they said a 4th of July in 1929, 10 died in Grand Haven when a 20-foot wave hit and buried the pier. The strong rip currents carried people away from shore. The wave came after an early morning storm. And then on July 13th, 1938, five died when a 10-foot wave hit during a calm day in the Holland State Park. In the past, researchers have said that water pushed towards Wisconsin after two days of powerful east winds barreled back westward, sweeping people off the Holland Beach Pier in boats.
2: Wow. That's, this, I'm surprised we haven't had any of those recently. I mean, they're talking about this stuff being, you know, you know 80, 90 years ago. Um, you know, this is not something which could not happen. This could happen today.
1: Well, you've actually had occurrences. They have also had that same effect. It's generated waves in excess of 27 feet. There was a buoy, and it's it's hard to validate a lot of the, the references from years ago. They had a buoy out there in Lake for measurement of wave action, and they had one that measured it at the time of a 50-foot wave. That was classified as a freak wave, not generated by a uh, landslide or anything like that. And dissipate just as quick as they they come up. Freak waves in the big, like, sea of Japan, not unheard of to have over 100, 150 foot wave. And the reason, if it happens to you, is it usually sinks your boat. Yeah, here. But still, 27 foot on Lake Michigan, pretty significant. Well,
0: they're they're saying that one of the. uh, An event that happened September 5th, 2014, Lake Superior, where they had. uh, A wave hit uh, Sault Ste. Marie around 6 p.m. Thursday. uh, The engineers reported 65-inch change in water levels, first lowered by 14 inches and then rose by 51 inches. They're saying that is now that metro tsunami as opposed to a siege they originally reported.
1: The the interesting thing is uh, if you ever read the uh, FSAR report for the Cook Nuclear Plant, for example, or Palisades, it goes and gives you the characteristics that if you have a wind blowing at X number of miles per hour from the furthest mo- mo- most point north on the lake, of uh, Lake Michigan, continued for five days at certain velocity, it will tell you how far the water will shift up on the beach in Michigan City, in New Buffalo, and Bridgman. And based on that worst-case scenario is how they built their intake uh, building, and put their pumps on concrete stanchions so they would still be above the water line in worst-case scenario. It's really interesting because they also did surveys of all the fish uh, vegetation in the surrounding areas so they could do before, during, and after comparisons to see what effect a nuclear plant slash warm water discharge may have on the environment. Really great, interesting reading. Uh-huh.
2: Shame they didn't think about that stuff over in Fukushima because you know that's a they have a, a hell of a mess going on over there.
1: Well, well, they did. In fact, their problem though was how do you anticipate something of that magnitude in a place that didn't have a history of that?
2: Yeah, but now, but now they've got a mess. They just they can't fix. You know, well, no
1: actually, major. they are fixing. They are fixing it. It's, I've, I've had friends who have actually worked there, and you get two versions. You get the concerned scientists for getting rid of nuclear power and you get the people who want the electricity. And you have to take them both and sort of look at them together. But we can debate that a different time.
0: <laughs> <laughs> that would that, be our, our, our atomic power podcast that we'll be doing. Yeah, it, In my disclosure statement would be, is my dad worked at the, in the nuclear industry the, my, my whole life, so uh, I, I tend to be more favorable than most. But I, I see the effort that went into it in in, uh, in the industry as a whole. Uh, so let's...
2: let's well, um, well I, let me digress a little bit here. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm kind of wondering, you know, they have these records of when these uh, uh, seashes have become ashore or, and these large rogue waves have uh, you know, killed many people. Uh, I'm wondering what kind of effects these have on, on ships. I'm wondering if any of the, uh, the gone missings were affected by these. Um, might bear. might be worthwhile to, uh, you know, if we can find the records uh, when these incidents happened, you know, were there, were there any uh, boats lost on those same days? You know, I'm curious. Uh,
1: that would be an interesting eyeball as to go through and see gone missing the dates and see how they correlated to the known tsunamis that they're talked about in uh, the 20s and 30s. Mm-hmm.
2: I mean if, if we had any gun missing those days because it sounds like that these were kind of just freak things they didn't happen you know during a storm it was just uh, you know it was several days after a storm and it was just basically that the recoil effect of the uh, the water being pushed to Wisconsin and then it you know basically you know rebounded here and gave us a, a good surge you know I, I don't know but do these are these things these waves going to be that noticeable out to sea or do they only, they only become noticeable when they're coming up on shore so I I have to look into that a little bit. Fourth of July, nineteen twenty-nine, and July thirteenth,
1: nineteen thirty-eight. And the July, yeah, the ones I witnessed at, at Cook Plant, for example, in the seventies, there was no wave action. It was not instantaneous. It was a slow out, stop, pause, come back in. It, it like I said, it, it would take your breath away because you couldn't figure out what was going on. Mm-hmm.
0: It, it, sometimes it, it's hard to visualize the, how things are connected. For that to happen.
2: Oh, the uh, what was it the, wreck, the, uh, the Bermuda, which is the one which oh, it's in it, it's in the bay on Grand Island. It's one of the wrecks which the uh, pictured rocks shipwreck tour goes over. That one uh, oh, was not really necessarily sunk, but had losses due to uh, that. Difference in uh, air pressure. I mentioned on Lake Superior, how it will make the uh, the water go up and down by by five feet or more. <laughs> With the story in Bermuda was that the uh, ship came into Munising and was leaking, and the captain uh, brought the boat in close to shore and, and they actually tied it to uh, trees on the shore, and then the captain and the and the mate took the yaw boat. Into Munising to get materials to patch the, the leaking hull, and while they were in town, one of these uh, Lake spear tides came in, and the boat uh, it had been beached actually and tied down. Yeah, and the boat raised up with enough force that trees on the shore drifted out ways and the leaks took over and sunk it. And the crew, which was sleeping on the ship, you know, did not survive the sinking. And, you know, Captain Lemay comes back, and, well, the boat is gone. Later on, the boat was was raised. I want to the Bermuda sank about 1872. Uh, a few years later, it was raised, and the cargo was salvaged out of it. And when they raised it, they put it over in the harbor on Grand Island, uh, Murray Bay, actually. And after they were done, they allowed it to settle. And so the boat, you know, this Civil War-era schooner sits in Murray Bay in 30 feet of water. Completely intact, it, it is missing the masts and the rigging, but it comes within 12 feet of the surface, and because it's so protected in there, um, you still have a completely intact, penetratable hull and about 30 feet of water there. So, you know, the, the, these um, tidal, you know, well, I call them tides here, have, have sunk ships. So, curious to see what, what, what more we have going on.
0: And, Mac, you also had another article where the are talking about uh, submarine here in the Great Lakes explorers to search for prehistoric life under the Great Lakes submarine will be used by University of Michigan researchers to look for prehistoric civilizations under Lake Huron uh, this one's in Tibawasi Township Michigan a submarine will be used by researchers to look for civilization under Lake Huron decades old yellow submarine PC1201 will take explorers to the Alpina Amberley Ridge, which researchers believe there's a 9,000-year-old caribou hunting structure, the Saginaw News reported. The site is associated artifacts provide unprecedented insight into social and seasonal organizations of prehistoric caribou hunting, a 2014 research report stated. Greg Bush provides international underwater services at Bush Marine Incorporated Included including the 23-foot-long submarine known as PC-1201. sub is 8 feet wide, 23-foot long, can carry a pilot and two passengers. The sub can be used for film production, tourism, salvage investigation, underwater inspections. It can also accommodate two passengers. A pilot has been all over the world, including Antarctica. Bush says the area originally used to be dry land at one point that connected northeastern Michigan to southern Ontario, but is now covered with 120-foot deep water. When combined with environmental and similar studies, it is suggested that distinctly different seasonal strategies were used by early hunters on the alpena Amberley Ridge, with autumn hunting being carried out by small groups, spring hunts being conducted by large groups of cooperating hunters. Researchers expect to begin their voyage to the site in July or August. But that'd be nice to have a couple of those, wouldn't it?
1: Oh, well, yeah, this is a continuation of the programs put on at the um, Shipwreck Festival there in Ann Arbor. I went to a couple of those last year and the year before, and this is a continuation of that. Um, quite interesting.
0: So hopefully they're going to do some
1: good yeah,
2: video on this. I, I kind of give you an idea where it is there. I'm, I'm not saying to, to drop in and check up on them or anything, but it is within port depth.
1: Oh, yeah, some of the artifacts they've already recovered and and dated uh, were along that wall. This would... In, enable them to go down and actually traverse it for a length uh, and then keep a continuity aspect of it that you haven't gotten by bouncing dives come back up going back down and what have you it'll be quite interesting for them
2: yeah and when they're, when they're going to those you know depths below sport depth then it's much more hostile environment along you on know, there in a submarine which is pressurized um, you know, they, don't, they don't have to worry about the uh, the same kind of time response drains and decompression all that, that a diver would have, so kind of cool they're getting this kind of support. And
0: how about this for some potentially cool scuba gear? A uh, crowdfunding campaign c- crowdfunding crowdfunding campaign underway for a underwater scooter. Uh, the Chinese marine robotics company, sublu has launched a crowdfunding campaign to mass-produce a new underwater scooter called White Shark MIX, designed for scuba divers, snorkelers, and Everyday water sport enthusiast, the twin propeller scooter's twist-and-go operation means wadding the wadding. Goodness. Water lovers can enhance their fun in the pool, while scuba divers can save energy and oxygen, meaning more quality time at the sea. It features a GoPro mount positioned to capture underwater images and video. Zero buoyancy means it floats when released. With Kaplan four-leaf blade propellers to reduce drag, the underwater scooter's top speed is 3.5 miles per hour or just over 5.5 kilometers per hour at depths of up to 130 feet or 40 meters. The battery lasts up to an hour and takes only 2.5 hours to fully charge. Uh, Made from specially formulated plastic, the White Shark MIX weighs only 6.5 pounds and is compact enough to fit in a backpack. The co-founder and CEO of Sublu we have reinvented the marine scooter and made it lighter, more powerful, and affordable. White Shark MiX is safe, easy to operate, fun—must-have accessory for scuba divers and water uh, lovers alike. The Indiegogo crowdfunding campaign kicked off May 16th with a target of 30,000 U.S. or 26,000 euros to put the scooter in the mass production. Has raised more than triple that amount. I'd love to know
1: how much motor, uh, how much thrust the motors will have, and the type of battery. I'm looking at that, and I sent you another link with some video of it.
0: Okay, let me take a look at that. Probably watching the video is going to destroy the Internet. So $350, is that what they're saying it's going to go? Yeah, well? I'm looking I'm looking
1: at one of the videos, and uh, I'm sort of impressed. I'm, I've used EPVs, but this looks pretty swift. I, I'm really curious. But also, they're using it for snorkeling here. They're not. I'm not seeing anybody use it with dive gear. That's going to increase your drag.
0: Yeah. Well, you think about it. Uh, you now, all all the underwater vehicles currently have been based on lead acid technology. So you've got a, a big, usually with probably a deep cell marine battery, and you've immediately got to overcome that. And uh, I, I like the format of this. I like it. I like the small size. Uh, and sometimes maybe you don't need to be complete propelled. You just need something to maybe give you a little bit of assistance.
1: Yeah, I'm looking at the video continuing, and it does show a diver with it. But I'm more used to those big uh, moosey ones, especially like they're using for cave diving. Mm-hmm. The ones that's got extended range and and thrust and carrying capability. Yeah.
0: Well, I wonder what would be interesting is uh, this would be one that would be primed for a di- for a, a hack. You know, you, you come up with a way of uh, – running a cable, and maybe you can power it off your, uh, you know, maybe some, an extra battery pack you have on your belt or on your body.
2: I'm sure the Sweeney would figure out a way.
1: You broke up on that. Say that again.
2: I'm sure the Swinney would figure
1: out a way. <laughs> oh, yeah, and
0: he's got the machining to help him uh, do it. Yeah. You well, got it. Yeah, they the, so far they've raised uh, 97560 U.S. dollars uh, from 135 backers. They sold out of the early unit, which is $329. They do have an exclusive uh, 20 remaining as of the recording of the show for 349 And that's a global free delivery, special discount, 30% uh, with a one-year warranty.
1: Did you see anything on the battery yet? I'm looking through it. I like the way they had the propellers all encased and shrouded.
0: Yeah. It kind of looks like a little Star Wars vehicle. If you're going to see it. Yeah, it does. Yeah. I want, I see that there's a squeeze button. I wonder how that's going to work at depth.
1: It's, it's a magnetic trigger.
0: Oh, magnetic. Okay.
1: Right. And a lot of the ones we've used here, you just put it around your hand. So if you let go, the motor will stop. And here it says each thrust is 8.83 pounds up to an hour. But I'd love to try one of those.
0: Yeah, 100% funded.
1: Oh, looks like they have, I'm looking at the Mark uh, 11, 12, 13, and 14. So there's four different models now.
0: Uh, the battery power are 120 watts. Uh, thank you for the purchase. We follow the Avian regulations powered with 160 watt hours of the machine can take on the plane. Also, part of the size is uh, be able to transport it. Our battery power 120 watt is ensuring maximum battery life can guarantee you can bring it to the rest of the world. So that's what must be part of those different models are, is you size it based on regulations.
1: Well, the weight is outstanding because the other ones are sort of ball busters when you're hauling them around. Yeah. But that says 5.5
0: pounds? 5 mm-hmm. That's awesome. Hey, and if you want to buy a 25-pack, you can get one for $7,500. It's $7,500?
2: It $7,
0: for 25 of them.
2: Oh, okay. I got you.
0: So let's see. Let me pull out the handy calculator. See what that works out to Well
1: you figure ten would have been seven hundred and forty eight dollars. So half of seven hundred and forty-eight would be what three hundred and twenty something?
0: You can uh uh at at seventy four eighty five you divide that by twenty-five and you get two hundred ninety nine dollars and forty cents. So if you can get twenty four of your friends to buy one with you, you can get a heck of a deal.
1: You could give them a call and say, hey, send your one for sampling here.
0: That seems to be our model for everything. They just need to start sending it to us. Of course, you keep giving everybody free promotion, then. Who knows? But how do we know it's going to work?
1: That's why we wanted to try one out. Uh-huh.
0: So, well, that's cool. If you get one well, of these.
2: It's good for good for fully sport depth and good for an hour underwater. Uh, I mean, a cool
0: tour to me. Well, that does it for Scuba News. Um, Mac, you mentioned that you had a safety story. Did you want to go ahead and cover that?
1: Yeah, I do. It's under diver fatalities, and I was doing some readings. I made a little... I wrote an article on uh, one of the topics on that accident feedback board. Okay, A couple of people read it, and... Um, So I'm just looking other stuff over, and I'll just read what I made a note here. Based on the results of the expert group, the Police Dive Squad, this is out of Australia slash New Zealand, their review of fatalities from 2006 through 2016 has indicated, or have indicated, it is not diver training because it's the primary culprit for unnecessary diving depths. It is far too often the overzealous adventurer breaking the very rules they have been taught to follow. It is evident that divers do not ditch their weight in emergencies. It identified that the majority of recovered dead divers were still wearing their weight belt or weight pouches. They stressed that establishing positive buoyancy is the one action that, more than any other action that can probably save a diver's life. Their view of the accident's details identified the odds of survival would have been greatly enhanced the divers had dropped their weights, improving the possibility of reaching the surface alive, and that this one response can be the critical response in threatening situations. And the samples were from the Australian fatalities from two thousand six, two thousand ten, and the New Zealand group from nineteen eighty through two thousand. Said so ninety or seventy six percent of all recovered divers were wearing their weights, and this is. Generally, not any younger people, but experienced divers, for the most part, they had key item, still had the weight belt on, or their weight pouches. So my point is, we all know not to do that. But how often have you been in a situation that you do other things before you consider getting rid of your pouches? Mm
3: -hmm.
1: So my words of wise, you guys out there, know where your buddy's pouches are or weight belt. And once in a while, you might want to practice doffing them. In the shallows, just to get used to, can I do it? And how smooth can I do that?
2: Well, and that's supposed to be part of your pre-dive. You know, uh, going over your kit and your buddy's kit. Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, yes.
2: The acronym, the acronym, because we because we really aren't fish. When, and part of that, the uh, you know, you're supposed to go over over your weights and, and uh, show your buddy, you know, how your weights are ditched in case they have to.
0: One thing I'd like to understand from that article were there, did people have properly, were they properly weighted and did they have enough weight that's ditchable? Because I've heard of situations where, uh, during the recovery, they discovered that somebody had, you know, sewn weights into gear or had them mounted to tanks or, uh, dive, uh, wings and that they, you know, without over inflating their, their BCs, there was really going to be no way that they were going to get up.
1: Well, even on my backpack, I have weight pouches in my backpack that I cannot get rid of. Yeah. But I can get rid of my two pouches quite often. It gets rid of itself on you know without me wanting it, it, it to. It, yeah. You know, but uh, well, I and think, I've never had uncontrolled ascent because of that. But I try not to go overweighted. Yeah. Well, I I think it's fine to have
0: some some weight that is not ditchable. Just that when you uh, ditch your weight you should be positively buoyant.
2: Well, but d- depending upon, you know, how much weight you need and how your rig is set up, you know, you, you may not have ditchable weight. Uh, I, Matt, correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, DIR standards does not go with, not like ditchable weight. Is that, am I correct on that?
1: I, I, I wouldn't hazard a guess right now because I'd have to have my notes with me.
2: Okay. Because uh, a lot
1: I, of them don't both, want you inadvertently getting rid of your weights is where that's coming from don't yeah. want you be down well, and suddenly be poof. Now I'm buoyant because I dropped my weight. Right.
2: Well, I know like with 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 when I'm diving my steel my steel back, back plate. Um, I'm using doubles, uh, I don't. Have, I mean, I don't have any weight. I mean, you 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 don't, when you if you're using uh, a pair of steel doubles, you're probably not going to have any. You'll bring any weight down with you. Uh, you know if you're, you know, unless you have need to put something just just to trim yourself out and trim weights aren't aren't gonna be digital either. So, you know, some of us may not even have digital weights in our, in our kit. And, that's, that, and depending on what you're doing, that can be proper too. So
1: Yeah. yeah. I think, I think the other aspect that bothers me more than my weight aspect is if I have an inadvertent, like, you know, you, you tweak your, your BC hose a little bit, poof, poof. What if I had, I go poof and it doesn't stop? Now, most of us never have that happen, ever. I've, I've seen it happen twice in the river relatively shallow and it'll get your attention in one hell of a hurry. But I've never mm-hmm. practiced that and it's like maybe I should start doing that a little bit. What if I did have an uncontrollable inflation? Would I be able to manage that? I've never practiced it. Well or I the think it is your- for your your dry suit inflate, you know how you burp it a little bit. If that sucker sticks open oh, yeah. you're going
0: up. Yeah you you can't burp a dry suit quicker than it can inflate typically.
1: Uh, no that lot. scares me more than any scenario I can think about. Is those two right there?
0: Because most of us only have the like a wrist dump or a shoulder dump. Um, you know, we're on a BC. You usually have multiple places where you can dump air. Uh, if you did have get a runaway like that,
2: well, but but even so, you know, if you are diving um, like you're supposed to, and you're staying, you know, out of decompression. Uh, I mean, as a recreational diver, um, a runaway ascent, you know, it, it, it's it, it's not going to kill you. It, it might hurt you, but if you're not in decompression, um, it's not going to kill you. You, 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 you may get bent, but, you know, it's going be, you know, a fatal bent. So, the important thing is, if you're in trouble, get the hell out of there. Yeah, I, I had a, a free flow last week, um, on the iron side. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I got the hell out of there. <laughs> you know, I didn't, although I didn't dish my weights, um, I inflated, I got the hell out of there. Um, no, I didn't get bent, didn't get hurt, but, uh, you know, like I say, it's it's not cool. You know, um, if you, uh, you know, if you got to if you got to get up there, do it by whatever means possible. Yeah, but don't ditch your weights if you can. So
3: yeah, yeah I,
1: I, that uncontrollable sense scares me. I mean, I was on a, a boat uh, when we were doing the Iron Tides a couple of summers ago, and I'm looking out, and all of a sudden I see this ballistic missile come out of the water, and I won't mention who who it was, but it came right up out of the water and then immediately back down, and it's like, oh, shit, you know, and the person controlled it, did not kill himself coming up, did not kill himself going back down, got back down, got on the down line, or the up line in this case, came back up, and, you know, and we put him on O2 just in case, but he had that auto-inflate, and up he went. Wow.
0: Yeah, I had an experience, but I wasn't, it, it wasn't a case of over-inflating, it was a case of uh, a little bit of disorient disorientation. I was on uh, Max wreck, which that's I think about seventy five feet, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, I it, the visibility was was pretty low that day. I think we had about six feet of viz. And I was trying to stay up above the wreck a little bit. And um, I got I was a little bit higher than I thought I was. And when you're in mid column with low vis. You really don't realize how quick you're going up, and I was looking at my gauge, trying to figure out what depth I was at and what what type of adjustment I needed to make. And then all of a sudden, I realized it was getting a lot brighter really quickly, <laughs> and I I was I I was I was rocketing up to the surface. So I went from 70 feet to you know touching the surface and uh, much too quick. And in that case, I went down and then I I did a uh, I, I headed up to the uh, the line and went up slowly you know a, a foot at a time uh, metering out what the rest of my air to make sure i had a, a slow recovery but that that will that will wake you up a little bit especially because you know, that that's right at the depth where it could start to be a problem
1: oh yeah if you've been yeah. down there playing with a dredge or something like that where you've been expanding a little energy
3: mm-hmm.
1: yeah you've been second to America, quick you yeah. can you can get a deficit but that's one thing I'm glad to say about the club is when we are working, even at that shallow depth, and we're working or something, we have a bottle usually down yes. by the anchor line, and we have one at a at a stage stop at 20 yeah. feet, yeah, which yeah. is the only way to do it. I yeah. have it, not need it. I need it, and not have it.
0: I miss those projects. We need to have some sort of project. We need to discover another shipwreck or uh, get a permit to do some excavating because that'd, be, that'd be. We fun. need
1: to get the, the we need to get the the preserve some funds so they can do this you know, the real way. Yeah. It would be really interesting to excavate that because I really feel when you get up there in the, in the nose and start digging away, you're going to find information or pieces that will be able to tell us what that wreck was. Yeah, I agree. I'd love to get in a chain locker.
0: Yes. That's where all the good stuff is. Well, Kevin, do you have a, a wreck of the week this week?
2: Yes, yeah, so I do, actually. Uh, I'm going to talk about the... Uh the america up there on isle royal see i've got a couple of links i'm going to share in the chat room here real quick who can follow along with us here okay here goes one and I'm, I'm going to read to you off of the uh Michigan preserves website i can find that again here we go okay uh america Launched in 1898, the America was a 182-foot-long passenger and package freighter that spent her life servicing the Isle Royal community by providing transportation to the mainland, mail, and provisions. First run of the 1928 season, she was under the command of an inexperienced first mate when she struck a rocky reef off Port Washington at the south end of Isle Royal. In an attempt to intentionally ground her, she was run hard aground ground just offshore. Subsequent to efforts to salvage the wreck, failed for technical or financial reasons. Starting in the 1950s, the wreck became a pop, became popular with sport divers because of her close proximity to Port Washington and her depth ranging from the bow nearly at the surface to the stern at 80 feet. Ice damage is evident at, to a depth of 30 feet, but much of the America's deck gear, including her windlass, remains. Uh, the engine room is remarkably intact with its piping engine and other equipment. The boilers did not explode in the sinking and are intact. Crew quarters and numerous cabins. And this is one I've not personally dove. It's one on my list to dive. Uh, you know, this is right there up there on Isle Royal. It's very, it's a uh, you know, a lot to see well within sport depth. You know, it starts at two feet deep and goes down to a depth of 80 feet. I'm talking to a number of friends who have dove this. Uh, me, I spoke to my friends who have dove this. Uh, you know, you, you do have a lot of penetration you can do on this wreck. Um, you know, lots of good photo ops. There's a lot of ambient light down there, of course. Uh, this is a really cool rock to dive. But you can get up there. Um, also, I shared in the chat room a uh, link to superiortrips.com america shipwreck. And you know, again, this looks very appealing. Uh, pictures we're seeing of this boat here, you know, right underneath the surface, extremely intact. You know, a great sport depth dive. Um, and, you know, you're pretty isolated because again, you are up there on Isle Royal. I'm not quite certain of what the accommodations are up there. Well, what the infrastructure is as far as getting tank fills and all that. If you're planning to see it, you'd certainly want to want to call ahead, you know, and see that they you know if they have charters and what and the whatnot, which I'm pretty sure they do. But you know, you want to verify before you go up. But you know, this is a wreck, according to you know SuperiorTrips.com. This gets uh, this gets uh, an average of 500 dives a year. Um, it does sound like the diving pressure and natural deterioration is taking its toll on the remains of uh, the, the American future appeared gloomy but they put together a uh, a preservation project on it. And not quite sure the, the pro- how well the preservation project is going on because this looks to be about eight years old for this update here. But this is one which attempts are being made to preserve it so it can be continue to be, be a great dive for a sort uh, for future generations. But you know here, say, here we have a ship gone gone down 1920, 1928, so 89 years ago, uh, nearly completely intact. You know, so I used to have near the bow, but you know, once you get down 30 feet, everything down there is in real good shape. And where else are you going to see stuff like this? You know, only here in the Great Lakes. If uh, so you can get a chance. Let me know how it goes for you because I want to do this one too. So <laughs> SS America, Excellent. Isle Royal,
0: Very nice. Yeah, that, that's on my bucket list to go
3: uh,
0: do some diving is up there at Isle Royal. Uh, I know uh, Rich Sinowick at Divers Incorporated does do a charter up there nearly every season. So if you visit his uh, his website, uh, and he's got quite a few episodes on Divers Sync where he talks about his Isle Royal trips. Uh, in his case, I think they uh, do a liveaboard charter where they stay on, on board a boat the whole time.
1: Well, I am anxious to go out back with Kevin. I want to go see that uh, wreck you just did last week off the of Hammond. Indiana? Oh, do you? Oh, okay. heck yeah. That's a nice prop.
2: Well, I'm, yeah, you know, I've am yeah, i been reading about that prop, and I can't believe it's still there in only 14 feet of water. I mean, it was just... But one reference I found on indicated that it was a wooden prop. But I'm not sure. Maybe that might have been um, something transcribed improperly, meaning a wooden propeller ship. I mean, like, you know, the ship was wood. I read a lot of different accounts on that ship, which didn't quite jive when I got there, but uh, yeah, that, that that was a really cool dive. I, I, I dove it, my, but my son snorkeled it. Um, his his first uh, experience on a shipwreck. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll talk more about that when we go over the dives of the week. Yeah. But, well, I, I'll,
1: I, the side scan shot I like. That's really nice.
0: Yeah. So let's let's transition to that part of the show the the, the diving. So uh, that, that looked beautiful.
2: Yeah, well, what it was is, uh, you know, for, for Father's Day, uh, my son asked me what I wanted to do, and well, you know, he knows <laughs> what I want to do, uh, but I wanted to involve him, and he's not a diver, so we actually planned on going up to dive the Nova Dock up there in Pentwater, but unfortunately, Mother Nature gave us uh, four, four-foot four waves, which, that's a lot, you know, we're not doing that in four-foot waves, so we, uh, you know, when you get high waves in this side of the lake, well, you go to the other side of the lake, and the waves aren't so high, and... This was one which oh, I was just just Google searching uh, Indiana shipwrecks. Um, came across a few websites that mentioned it. You know this particular wreck, which is the uh, was it the Charles Williams? No, the George Williams. Yeah, George Jeff Williams. And I found a few murky pictures of it, but the descriptions of it sounded entertaining I thought, uh, yeah, this would be a really good introduction introductory wreck for him. Um, Yes, it was originally, like, 230 feet long. This was a real big boat. Really surprised that it was uh, a derelict so young, though, because it was built in 1896, and yet it was, uh, um, you know, abandoned on shore in 1915. And for an iron-hauled ship, which which is what I read it was, uh, you know, that's awfully young to only get uh, 19 years out of it and and be dumped. But... um, getting out there and reading some more information uh, it sounds like it actually was a wooden chip that was iron sheathed because pretty much all you see down there is wood but i'd come across some iron sheathing and sure it's only 14 feet of water and we were fortunate enough to have you know i don't know uh 30 foot visibility in that shallow of water uh, you know, we really lucked out on this one nice um I believe you actually could dive it from the beach. Um, some of the talk about it on scuba board, talk about people you know, reaching from the beach. I wasn't 100% certain on uh, the numbers. I am getting the numbers off of Google Earth, but there were you know, different things in the area which could possibly be. Because looking at Google Earth, you could see a lot of stuff in the area, which I figured probably were just remnants of old uh, break walls. But uh, someone has tagged it on Google Earth, and you mouse over that, and that gives you numbers, although the tag on Google Earth is not exactly right, but if you scale back to the history a little bit, you go back to, like, I think, like, 2014, then you'll find an image which actually shoots it in the water, and, um, you know, using that, you get the numbers, which are also on my Facebook. I, I'll put a Facebook I'm on my Facebook, and uh, I'm actually going to put a video on YouTube but but, um, you know, you can you can find RECs this way, folks. You can, um, you know, if you hear a story where you, and you see it on Google Earth, mouse over it, give your numbers. You know, keep in mind, Google Earth's format for the GPS is not the format that most of us use in our GPS, so there's some conversion involved, which I won't get into right now. But, uh, you know, you can find RECs this way. And, you yeah. well, know, I've not not find this Rex in Google before, uh, um, but it's, it's a cool document. I've a fish down there. It's a big bass. A um, machinery. The boiler itself is there. All the engine is on. Um, Mac, I'm thinking, didn't some of the later boilers, wasn't the firebox part of the boiler on the, on the later ones?
1: I believe they were.
2: Okay. Yeah. This looked to be the type where the way the boiler sat, coal was shoveled into the bottom of the boiler. And... Oh, it's a, it's a big one, though. I mean, that boiler was within about pretty feet of surface. And you're in 14 feet of water, so you're looking at about, you know, 10, 11-foot diameter boiler. Um, and, and fish were making it a home, too. There were some bass that were bedding inside it, which I didn't want to disturb. Uh, you know, there's there's team sitting around. But, yeah, I just saw that propeller. <laughs> I mean, uh, you know, there's a 8-foot diameter propeller sitting down there. <laughs> you know? I mean, uh So close to Hammond, Indiana. Why that wasn't salvaged, I have no idea. So, but we got my son out there. Uh, I don't know. uh, We kind of had miscalculated the size of wetsuit he needed, so he didn't have a wetsuit on, unfortunately. And the water was a little chilly, at about sixty-two degrees on the surface. But you know, he's he's a trooper. He wanted to see it. He'd he'd seen it from the surface, and he saw it on the side scan. So out we went, and uh, yeah, he was pretty impressed by it. And I guess while we were out there on the wreck, there's a beach up on shore, and the, some kids came out on paddle boards. And it sounded like the lifeguard up on the beach had mentioned to the people up on shore it to be a big dive. flag, of course, hey, there's people out there diving that wreck, and the kids got curious, so they came out to saw us. And next thing we know, we got like four teenagers on paddle boards that want to see the wreck. And I'm like, well, look down. Oh, cool. You know, <laughs> and uh, no, it, it, it's, it's a cool wreck. I mean, um, it's. It's, it's 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 broken up, you know the, um, you no know, you can identify stuff the uh, bomb. I guess I should have side scanned further. It sounds like the bow was a little bit further away. We were diving, we were diving the stern section obviously, but uh, I guess the bow was a little further away on it there. It's in like in two pieces. I didn't realize that when I was there. So all we got was basically just the uh, stern section was still, which is still, you know I don't know 150 foot long you know, you know, chunk of boat there. I didn't think any of it was but I guess now i finding out later on, there's two pieces to dive out there. So, yeah, but if you want the numbers, those numbers I have on my Facebook are correct. You know, if you look at my Facebook with the albums, I got a little, little blog written up on it there, and, you know, you get the number up there, and we launched out of the marina there in uh, Hammond, Indiana. Um, 20 bucks a long, that's you know. Got to pay play. But there's a substantial seawall, uh, but it's, Got a lot of riprap and things there, so it'd be kind of a challenge to hike down that. The board from 2010 indicated that you could hike down the seawall and um, drive it, or you drive it from the from the beach. It's pretty good swim off the beach, though. You know, you're probably three yards off the beach, so you know, unless you're gonna you know bring a GPS out with you so you can drop on it, um, that might be you you could easily miss it from the beach. But say. Cool wreck 14 feet of water George F Williams
0: excellent sounds fun and I I think it's interesting uh, when you have a shipwreck in that depth that close to a beach where you might be able to use it as a kind of like crack for future divers you know, wonder how many of those paddle boarders uh, may have caught the bug and
2: eventually become scuba divers well they were definitely interested you know they uh, you know they, they came out there just to talk to us and they didn't realize that they were going to see the shipwreck. They just wanted to know where it was. And they had questions for me about if you could go inside it and things and everything and, you know, what, you know, what kind of, you know, gas I was using. Yeah, know, they had a lot of questions for me out there. I was mostly focusing on, you know, my son because it was his first time snorkeling. And uh, he was kind of learning it, and I'm trying to teach him how to snorkel out there and things. So, uh, first concern. But, uh, it was, no, it was a good time. You know, it was uh, – I don't know, about an hour and a half, hour 45 minutes to get there. Um, you know, I can tell it was right next to the, the Hammond water treatment facility there. That was what they mentioned on Google, on um, Superboard, and I used that to find it uh, on Google Earth. And, you know, it was a real good day. We had great weather, and, you know, I could have a better time, really. So Excellent.
0: Well, Mac, did you get any diving in this last week?
1: Just in the books, I did a presentation at the museum on Tuesday, and turned around and I saw some familiar faces. I saw didn't know didn't notice were there until after the presentation.
3: Hmm.
0: <laughs> Somebody lurking around there, huh?
1: Yeah, I think it was Mister Kevin there.
2: <laughs> oh, you know, you you just I heard something was going on down there, kind of interesting. So I thought I'd stick my head in. So okay. um, yep. I got I got there a few minutes late. So I kind of you know.
0: Well,
1: I got two more invites to do two more programs of different types, so it pays to be heard, I suppose.
2: There you go. Yeah. Very good. And Matt does know his stuff. You know, he's got a lot of intriguing material to show off, and Matt knows his stuff. You can tell us about presentation, Mac.
1: I'm sorry. Say again?
2: Would you like to share a little bit more about what your presentation was, was about?
1: Well, the title is What Lies Beneath. I have a series of them, and that one is What Lies Beneath it's a Dash, the Waters of Pawpaw Lake. And then it's subtitled, Trash or Treasure. Uh, Another one I've done before and I'll probably be doing again is uh, What Lies Beneath, the same thing, What Lies Beneath, and this one, the Waters of St. Joe River. And we uh, specialized on all the material we've been locating and finding around the Niles area from the dam all the way down to uh, the dock that we use and that one was well-received. you yeah, know, It basically shows you know, all the shopping carts and the bikes, and the people are just, my gosh, they throw that into the river? And you might notice, you did see what uh, Jake salvaged this week from there. Bicycle that couldn't have been there a week. Oh, wow. Oh. Yeah, and it's from maybe four foot of water. And uh, as a side note, the river is starting to be tamed. The pipe is now visible. So uh, if it doesn't get too much more rain. Maybe in a week or two, people will be frequenting the river again for the Thursday night dives.
2: Oh, okay. Okay. So Thursday, Thursday, maybe the river. Yep. Stay tuned.
1: I am yep. waiting for the river, yes. Yep. And,
0: and Karen yeah. in the chat room mentioned that they went to Paw tonight. In fact, she was the only one. Uh, she showed up at Forest Beach, stayed shallow since she was doing it as a solo dive. And if you're on the Mud Club Facebook page, she has the full dive report there.
1: Yes, and cool. she brought in the obligatory golf ball.
0: Oh, well, very good. <laughs> Absolutely, Made and she
1: official. has a couple of nice, yep, a couple of nice old-fashioned batteries with the poles exposed. So she's mm-hmm. turned into a pretty decent grubber. Excellent.
2: Cool. Well, I was looking for golf balls out there on the George Williams, and I didn't find any. So maybe that wasn't an official dive. Uh, um, did steam out there at Lake Sixteen? Did dive on Lake Sixteen on Tuesday? Got. Close to an hour, just training dive the breather, and I don't think anybody found golf balls at uh, Sugarloaf Lake. Uh, sounds had like a the, big dive.
1: i was going to say it sounds like you guys had a lot of weeds out there, though. I hear.
2: Oh my gosh! I mean, I, I buddy with Richard Curtis, and I've never been in the water, so I'd let him nav- I, I let him navigate. And I let him navigate, and I ran the flag. And I think he went through every weed bed on that lake. I mean, we came out of there looking like like you know something out of a B-rated movie. I mean, uh, I mean it, it was tough. <laughs> I mean, uh, once we got past the weed bed, you know, we had some decent visibility. I want to say we had about eight foot on the bottom. Some of the guys that got the deeper water, I know Eric was saying that he got, uh, I don't know, his words were phenomenal visibility. I don't know. Is Eric still, Eric still in the chat room? Yes, he is. Uh, he said he had phenomenal visibility. Um, but there was a, we had a lot of divers out there. Uh, I want to say, I don't know. 15 divers at least, and
1: Sugarloaf's not that big of a lake. But yeah, well, I, was, uh, I, mean, I was going to say, go if you do get out the pawpaw again, if you're over in Sherwood Bay, weeds are going to kick your butt. If you're on Outlet Bay, I have not seen them as heavy in years. And they actually, I was talking to the man, I was taking some pictures, uh, two boat down, two docks down, they'd already recovered that day 30 pounds of dead fish. Uh-huh. I had been at uh, the opposite side of the lake over by uh, Crystal Palace, where it used to be. Got permission to talk to a guy over there, went on his property, weed up the yin-yang dead fish. So he was wondering, is there some kind of fish kill going on? And I did my first discovery of quagga mussels in Pawpaw Lake last week. Oh, wow. And I found them on clams. So if you get out there, I, I meant to save a sample and I wanted to validate it. But they're on the clams, and they're trying. They're getting enough on there. They're closing up the shell, so mm-hmm. you're going to kill all the mussels again. Mm-hmm.
0: So, what, what do you yeah. think is going on with the fish? Is it just uh, maybe uh, uh, low oxygen going on?
1: Well, it is. That, that's at, at uh, in Poplar Lake. You don't have any oxygen below 20 feet. It's dead.
2: Oh. Um, well, uh, aerators. Well, actually, excuse me. That's the one that. That's the one that we were diving last last year, and I was down at 70 feet. And the uh, hydrogen sulfide at seventy feet, uh, just about made, just about give you pretty winter a Oh, absolutely! Uh, yeah,
3: it's, came up, it's, I came. I mean,
2: I was using I was using my camera mask that night, which kind of leaks a little bit, and you know, I got a little bit of that stuff in my eyes, and my eyes are burning, and the stuff stunk, and um, it was, uh, yeah. I I wonder if it's a hydrogen sulfide out well, there
1: it's, it. it's part mean, of that too. It's. Uh, it, it's quite interesting if you want to look at the composites of what that sediment layer is. Uh, I've been reading up on all the, the materials they've been doing for the last seven years. It's quite entertaining, and it gave the chemistry background of what they're finding. And um, they were given the average visibility levels based on years and on the uh, water sample makes, you know, what their, their values were. It, it's quite interesting. But right now, it sucks out there by weeds. Yeah, well, gotta,
2: I'm going it, to digress for just a second. Go ahead. Uh, Eric and the chat. We had, we had 18 divers out there at uh, Sherylow Lake. So good night out there. But Sorry I had to interrupt with that, but okay.
0: No problem. Well, we're talking about the fish kill. It seemed like we had an article in the last year, and they were talking about that uh, – when you have a situation like what's going on at Pawpaw and the water starts to warm, the fish going to depth to try and get away from the heat, they prefer to be cool than to breathe. And that's where some of the kills start to come from.
1: Yeah, because they were not one type of fish. They were game fish, trash fish, you name it. There was a wide variety of fish.
2: Well, I was that when the water is warmer, it speeds up their metabolism so they require more oxygen. And they go, so that they go to colder water and hoping to, you know, require less oxygen. And then you're into the areas with less oxygen. Cause you go deeper, you run into the areas without oxygen. So that, that may be the issue. Cause yeah, it well it had the water's wonderful up pull out lately too. Um, I know Lake 16, I want to say the water time, the water temp was like in the sixties down to about 15 feet. Then it dropped off pretty, pretty fast. Um, I know the dry suit divers yesterday uh, at Sugarloaf were not happy. <laughs> they were talking about how oh, getting overheated. I won't know that's, but uh, you know the water warmed up lot just within the last two. That that made that fish kill.
0: Yeah, yeah, I think so. Well, Mac, you have anything you want to plug before we get on with it? Uh, not really. It looks
1: like we may be able to do an ecology dive uh, in September. Uh, I think I put the the date on the club site. Under dives coming up, and I've updated that a little bit. I'm back into the saddle on some of that.
3: Excellent.
1: So keep that in mind for those who want to do an ecology We haven't done one for you know
0: since last year.
2: <laughs> How
0: about you, Kevin? What would you like to plug?
2: Well, um, before, uh, dive shot. Those bargains online, those bargains line aren't going to fill your scuba tanks. Also, uh, support your local libraries. Every channel time you get a chance in your in your villages, what money you can, they need it. Look of information. Know you can't find on the internet. Um, I'm going to start plugging pretty soon the uh, buoy project we have going on. There's actually a uh, project going on between the Coast Guard, the DNR, the preserves, and a number of local divers trying to get the uh, Racks, 186 rocks throughout the Great Lakes buoyed, and trying to get the public on board with that here because we're going to need some support not too far down the road. Um, okay. So, talking more about that in the future, but uh, that's all I got for the night.
0: Excellent. Uh, also, I'd like to thank WRVO Radio for putting us on the year on the air one more. Year. If you like hunting, fishing, and the great outdoors, you'll love WRVO Radio. Visit our website, www.scoobobsessed.com. Scroll on down to the footer, and you can get a link on how you listen to their network. Um, also, if you like like our program, we just certainly could use some support, even if it's only a dollar. Uh, become a Patreon. Go to our website, www.scoobobsessed.com. Click on one of the Patreon links and uh, give whatever you can helps us keep the show on the air. I'd like to thank our Patreon supporters at the Dive Nitrox level. Currently, that is Vanessa Homiec. Thank you, Vanessa, for supporting the show. And again, to all our Patreon supporters, if you want to follow us on Twitter or at Scuba Obsessed, we're on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Scoob Obsessed. So are you guys ready for that time of the show? Ever
2: ready. With Bated Brad.
0: Okay. Well, this one I'm going to be, uh, this is another one from Rod. Uh, change it up a little bit, but you'll get the gist of it. So here we go. A warm water diver wanted to earn some extra money for the summer, so he decided to hire himself out as a handyman. He started canvassing uh, well-to-do neighborhoods, went to the front door of the first house and asked the owner if he had any odd jobs to do. Well, I guess I could use somebody to paint my porch. How much will you charge me? Delighted, the uh, warm water divers responded, uh, how about 50 bucks? The man agreed and told him where the paintbrushes were and that everything he needed was in the garage. The man's wife, hearing the conversation, said to her husband, Do you realize that our porch goes all the way around the house? He responded, Well, he agreed to doing it without looking at the job. The wife responded, You're right. I guess I'm starting to believe all those uh, warm water jokes. Later in the day, the uh, diver came to the door, collected his money. You're finished already? The startled husband asked. Yes, he replied. I even had paint left over. So I gave it two coats and pressed the man reaching his pocket for $50, handed it to him with a $10 tip. By the way, the uh, warm water diver added, that's not a, a porch you have, it's a Lexus.
3: Ouch,
2: ouch, ouch. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah
1: who needs a spray paint
2: job
0: yeah well you know the the brush strokes add a little character (laughs) so until next time go out there and get wet and stay safe
2: and have a good time doing it
0: recording has been completed.